And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. For those who are joining us for the first time, I'd just like to make a very brief comment about the purpose of our podcasts and our articles and our videos. It's really to to turn you into the most knowledgeable do-it-yourself investor that we can. We firmly believe that if you get a grasp of the historical returns and risk and, and, and all that we know from the past, in some cases going back to 1928, many cases going back to 1970, that it will make you a better investor. It will help you stay the course. And it will, I think, keep you from making some of the human mistakes that are so common and that tend to lead to lower returns rather than higher. Now, last week, we did the first in a series of some eight to ten podcasts that are what we call boot camp. A boot camp is to address what we think are some of the most important decisions that you will make as an investor. In last week's podcast, we focused on the decision to invest in stocks versus bonds. Uh, if you didn't hear it, I hope I hope you will listen to it. I'll give you the bottom line is uh, simply that bonds are great for the short term, horrible for the long term, and stocks are very risky for the short term, but really not so risky for the long term, particularly uh, when you buy a lot of them at one time. Now, in this week's podcast, I want to focus on a couple of tables, and I would love for you to take the time, stop, print them out, review them before I talk about them. might be of some value, but certainly they are going to be the focus of this presentation because this is the presentation that we call the ultimate buy and hold portfolio. Now, I need to give you the background because this background goes back more than 25 years ago when we started doing this particular study. It was different when we did it back in the 90s. It was different because the title, The Ultimate Buy and Hold Portfolio, wasn't just about equities. It was about the combination of equities and fixed income. And what we found was that a portfolio comprised of of many different equity asset classes, uh, 60% in that portion of the portfolio, and the other 40% in bonds produced a return that was almost the same as the S&P 500. And in those days, it was commonly believed that it was very, very difficult to beat the S&P 500. And here we had an example where you could do it, at least looking backwards, you could do it with 40% of your money in fixed income. And so the magic was not so much about the extra money that you made in equities uh, as it was in the fact that you could possibly, probably, uh, get the return of the S&P 500 
at at 40 to 50% less risk. That was the big deal. But what happened was, because we called it the ultimate buy and hold portfolio, a lot of people translated that into you should have 60% of your money in equities and 40% in fixed income, which was not the intent really uh, of the study. So at some point, I don't remember what year it was, we dropped the fixed income. And we talked about the ultimate buy and hold portfolio as being all equities. And then as you'll see in some of the upcoming podcasts, we show you how to mix that with a certain amount of fixed income. And we would like that amount to be uh, addressing your need for return and your risk tolerance. And so uh, we'll get to that later. But right now, I want to focus on the idea of this being the ultimate buy and hold strategy. Now, if you downloaded uh, the information uh, that I mentioned, the tables, you will have one table, A1A. Now, what that table is meant to show is not the portfolio you should have necessarily, although a lot of people do. And in fact, my own portfolio looks very much like this in the equity part of the portfolio. But the reason that we felt comfortable calling it the ultimate is, is, is not about the return so much as it is that it is a portfolio that's built on no favorites. And by no favorites, I mean we didn't want you to put all of your money in the S&P 500. The academics had convinced me and a lot of other people I work with that by combining the S&P 500 with other equity asset classes, you would find that the risk stayed relatively constant, but the return uh, could go up. And so it, 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 it suggested that it was a portfolio that wasn't very complex. You just had to put part of your money into a series of these equity asset classes. And as we see the portfolio today, what you're going to see is that starting with all S&P 500, we're going to start adding in 10% increments other equity asset classes. Now, I can tell you right now that if you use different ones in terms of, you know, do you use large value as the second or small value as the second, it doesn't matter by the time you get all 10 of them because whether you start with large value as the second or small cap value as the second, eventually all those differences are going to iron out and you're going to see the impact of owning all 10 of these equity asset classes. So bear with me. It's a lot of numbers. Again, it will be helpful if you have these numbers as I talk about them. And later, uh, Daryl and Chris right now are on vacations and or have other projects that are consuming them. And uh, they are 100% volunteer in the work that they do for us, for which we are we are very thankful, but when they get back and we're all together, we will actually record 
each of these podcasts, but we will make them a video. And in that case, people will be able to look at the numbers we're talking about, which I will think make it easier to use. But in the meantime, for those of you who are willing to do it this way, let me walk you through the implications of adding these additional equity asset classes. Now, let me start by saying that we are using the S&P 500 as the first standalone equity asset class, partly or mostly because it is the most popular equity asset class. Large companies, very large companies, 500 of them, so you've got a ton of diversification, money spread over many different industries, sectors, etc. And, uh, and, 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 and the, the impact of that, and, and they, actually the S&P 500 index itself was established in 1957. But it wasn't until 1976 that John Bogle brought his S&P 500 uh, uh, index fund to the market. And, and so what we found was, in, at least in the minds of most investors, is this was a very difficult equity asset class to beat. And certainly, if you looked at the kind of returns, let's call them investor returns, not investment returns, but investor returns, it doesn't surprise me that people viewed it as very difficult to beat because when you start monkeying with it and start timing it and start trying to pick the best stocks out of the 500, it turns out that investors haven't done very well. But if you just owned the S&P 500 from 1970. So how can we go back to 1970? Well, remember I said it started being tracked in 1957. So what we have is the hypothetical result uh, prior to when the index was actually live. But what we know is this. From 1970 through 2023, 50 Four years. We know that a a a one hundred thousand dollar investment grew to twenty three million eight hundred and seventy seven thousand one hundred and fifty one dollars. It is right there under Portfolio One S and P five hundred. That happened because. It was a compound rate of return of that index of 10.7% over that 54-year period. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but but you know, sometimes the market goes up and sometimes it goes down. Does Is that all taken into consideration? Well, here's the interesting thing about this result. When you make what they call a lump sum investment and you hold it for a long time, the return won't matter what the sequence of events were. All that matters is that there were some years that were up and some years that were down, and you can mix them and turn them backwards or inside out. It won't make any difference. If you're not taking money out, if you're not adding money, a lump sum investment will be the same regardless of the sequence of events or of returns.
So 10.7%, if you started putting money in on an annual basis, that would change the compound rate of return, or certainly taking money out. But the bottom line is 10.7 is the starting amount in terms of return that we're going to be looking at as we make baby step, minor changes in the portfolio. And by the way, that 10.7%, the annualized standard deviation was 17.2%. Now, a higher number suggests higher volatility. A lower number in standard deviation suggests lower volatility. So we'll be able to see as we take more risk, because we're going to take more risk, by adding these other equity asset classes, what actually happens to that standard deviation? That's, that's important. It's not just the return, it's the volatility you accept to get it. So we take our first baby step, and that is we go 90%, we commit 90% to the S&P 500, and the other 10% we put into large cap value. Now, what's important to know about the S&P 500, it is made up of very popular growth companies that everybody would like to have a piece of, but it also contains what they call value companies, companies that don't sell at a very high price-to-earnings ratio, just not, not as popular, not in favor, but still a legitimate public company and, and in many cases, they're household names. They're companies that have been around for, for 150 or 100 years. So what happened to the return when you added 10% large cap companies, but value only, no growth? Get rid of the exciting, the great stuff. You're left with those that are out of favor, basically. And what we know is that over that 54 years, instead of a 10.7%, by taking that small slice of large cap value, and now you're 90% S&P 500, 10% large cap value, that one-tenth of 1% took your $23.9 million to $25.9 million. You made... By increasing the return, basically one-tenth of one percent, another $2 million. Now, this may be one of the most important lessons on this page, and that is the small differences in returns. And you know we can find differences in returns because of expenses, lower expenses. You know we can get better rates of return if we can find have lower uh, taxable events. There's a a number of different ways you can get better rates of return. In this particular case, this one-tenth of 1% 1 is simply because you have overweighted a little bit, if you want to think of it like this, this 10% to large-cap value. So that's our baby step number one. Would you have sensed any difference in volatility? No. As a matter of fact, because value doesn't necessarily go up and down with growth, the standard deviation went down a little bit. 
not it's not statistically important. I mean, it's not like a huge amount, but what it says is you picked up an extra two million dollars uh, while you didn't take any more risk, and so that is baby step number one. The next baby step takes you into another equity asset class, and this is what we call the small cap blend equity asset class. And by the way, those large companies are companies that on average are over $100 billion in value. If you multiply their stock price times the number of shares of that company, that's what the company is being evaluated at. And and many of these companies are very fair. In fact, some of these companies are worth over a trillion dollars today. But the smaller companies, the average size company might be three to six billion dollars. They're tiny compared to their uh, to the giant companies, but they're not penny stocks. They're not they're not little tiny companies that don't. These are companies that have a decent market for their stocks, and in in many cases, they are companies on the way up and companies on the way down. I mean, it happens both ways as corporations grow and then they shrink and then they grow again. I mean, this is this is not something that anybody, and this is an important thing to, to remember, nobody knows what the value of a company is going to be or the market is going to be a year from now, a decade from now, or even 50 years from now. I mean, we can we can look back uh, almost a hundred years, and see that there was a forty-year period. The S and P five hundred, at least on paper, compounded at eight point nine percent, and there's another year it compounded at twelve point five percent. So you know you can kind of believe that it's going to be somewhere in between those two numbers, but it's no guarantee. And again, nobody knows. But I do know this: as we look at the numbers and looking backwards. If we took a 10% of that money we have in the portfolio that was 90% S&P 500 and 10% large cap value, now we're going to add 10% small cap blend. So small companies, some are growth, some are value. What happens to the compound rate of return? It goes from 10.8 to 11%. And the standard deviation is still less than that of the S&P 500 on its own. So is that a free lunch? Well, in a way, it's a free lunch. uh, But you have to understand that you're getting there by adding a more risky asset class to the S&P 500. Now, in a way, that's not so different from the S&P 500 itself. If you looked at the S&P 500, yes, there are trillion-dollar companies, but there are also companies that are worth $50 billion or $40 billion. So it, too, is a combination of big and relatively small companies. But now we're going to add to our portfolio on purpose a group of companies that are smaller. And we have now 
instead of being $2 million ahead of where we st- of where we got to with the S&P 500, we're now at $3.8 million. We're up to $27.6 million. Remember, we started at 23.9 approximately. So you have added now almost $4 million. And that's meaningful. Now, I know that most of us don't have 54 years. But I can tell you, when my wife and I are are, are, are gifting money to a, a newborn child who's probably going to live to be 100, these numbers mean a lot to us. And we think they should to a 20 or a 30 or a 40-year-old. So now we have taken two baby steps along with one giant step. S&P 500, 80%, large cap value, small cap blend, each 10. Then we add one more 10% piece, and that this time is with small cap value. Get rid of the growth, you're left with value, and what we know historically is that is a a very profitable equity asset class. In fact, last week in the podcast, as we looked back uh, over the uh, uh, 96 years, I think, we looked at, uh, it, it, it showed that $100 in the S&P 500 grew to almost a million, whereas $100 in small cap value grew to more than $14 million. So small cap value is the the winner looking backwards. And again, we don't know what that means for the future, but we believe, uh, as the academics believe, there will be a premium for small cap value. Now, that premium looking back to 1970, now by adding that 10% position, increases the return by four-tenths of 1%. So now you are up to about... uh, uh, almost $9.4 million more in value. Plus, you, you, the, the volatility is virtually the same as where we started. The next step is to add a slice of U.S. REITs, Real Estate Investment Trusts. As a group, they have a return that is very similar to the S&P 500. But the reason they are of some value in this portfolio is their return is made at different times. It doesn't go up and down with the S&P 500, and that can be a benefit. In this particular case, as you look at Portfolio 5, and you're adding another tenth, 10%, you'll notice the return is still 114 Now, if you look at the actual dollars that were made, it now takes you up to $33,600,000 approximately, but the volatility has now gone down. And that is because it does not go up and down with the S&P 500, and it doesn't particularly go up and down with the small cap blend. It does look something like value over a long period of time, but it is a small slice, and uh, but now we're up uh, almost well, it's nine point seven million now uh, that the money has grown to uh, extra, 
uh, over the beginning 23 million nine. It's now up to 33.6 or 7. Now, in one lump sum, I'm going to make a giant baby step because it's actually four baby steps. It's 10% in international large cap blend. It's 10% international small cap blend. It's 10% in international large cap value. It's 10% in international small cap value. And the impact of adding those four 10% pieces takes the compound rate of return up to 11.8. So in theory, about one-tenth of one percent per additional equity asset class. And the compound rate of return takes the ending value to over $42 million. With a, 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 a annualized standard deviation of about 17.7. Okay, it's a little more volatile now than the S&P 500, but, but you've more than, than doubled uh, the amount of money that you have on, in, in your portfolio at that point. An exchange that most of us would take if we could just stamp the word guarantee next to it. There is one more baby step, and it is to add a very different equity asset class different from the from the small and large value blend US international and that is emerging markets and those are the countries that are developing and by the way they individually are risky but over this period of time if you gave a slice 10% to our ultimate buy and hold equity portfolio it would have raised the total return to 12.1 the standard deviation to 18.3. That is very little difference from the original 17.2 in terms of volatility. And the total value of the portfolio at that point of 48. almost $9 million, up from 23.9. So that's a huge increase. And yet you did it by simply adding a whole bunch of equity asset classes, which, by the way, means that you also added a whole bunch more stocks to the portfolio. So literally, when you put this all together, when I look at the portfolio, the equity part of our portfolio that my wife and I have, we have over 12,000 different companies. You are not betting on Microsoft to to be your hero anymore or Facebook or any of those great names that we that we know and love Tesla Amazon etc now whether you'll get better returns with that handful of great companies versus this total portfolio we're going to find out but the academics would say that more than likely you're going to get a higher return over the long term with a combination of all of these equity asset classes versus just the S&P 500. And they will remind you that it is not a matter of a riskless additional. It is a matter of 
equity asset classes that are more risky, but the interesting thing about them, they don't go up and down together. I remember a couple of years ago, the market was, the the S&P 500 was down over 20%. Small cap value was down about four or five. Other years, it's just the opposite. And the idea is to get all of these different asset classes, all of these different companies working for you as you roll out of bed in the morning. Half of the world is probably been working for, working for eight hours while the other half is just coming to work or some proportion of those numbers and those times. Now, this is not to suggest that the ultimate strategy ultimate portfolio for you is going to be these particular equity asset classes. The fact is that you may want to put together a portfolio that just has two equity asset classes. You would like to have some large. You would like to have some small. You would like to have some growth. You would like to have some value. You can do that. And you can do it with a lot less complication. And now I want to show you quickly some examples of that. And that is to go to table A2A. And that is called the Alternative Equity Portfolio Tables. And it does the similar thing. It looks at the return from 1970 to 2023, but beyond the S&P 500, and beyond the ultimate buy-and-hold strategy, it shows you the results of eight different strategies. From four U.S. funds, a combination of four, that's, that would be large-cap blend, large-cap value, small-cap blend, small-cap value. Some of those would be U.S., some of those would be international, or you could get the U.S. four fund strategy, all U.S. funds, U.S. large value, U.S. large blend, U.S. small value, U.S. small blend. And what you can see here is over this entire period, you can see what the bottom line number was. Now, next week, I'm going to dig into these portfolios in a lot of detail. But I want it from a 30,000-foot level here. I want to focus in for just a few minutes so you understand the importance of this decision for you and for your heirs. And by the way, you may see exactly what you should have as a portfolio, but you'll be looking at something else for your grandchild or your or your child if you were recommending what they do with their long-term money. So what I see in this table A2A, I see that there, there we have the S&P 500 and that 23,877,000. And then we have the 48.8 million in the ultimate buy and hold worldwide. But here I see the next one is the worldwide four fund. Some U.S., some international, some small, some large, some gross, some value. Compound rate of return, 12.3%. That turns the money into uh, over $51 million. Or there's the four-fund U.S. strategy at about 50, almost, well, it's over $49 million. 
Or there's a strategy that's all value, large value U.S., large value international, small value U.S., small value international, and emerging markets as well. And that compound rate of return was over $59 million. In fact, make that 69. Then there's one that's U.S. all value, half in large, half in small. Uh, did just fine. Uh, that was $73 million. There's all worldwide small cap value, about $120 million. Or the all U.S. small cap value all by itself, $102 million. And here's one. This is the one that, that my wife and I recommend for our granddaughter, about a year and a half old, half in the S&P 500 and half in small cap value. And over that, that 54 years, that uh, $100,000 grew to about $57 million. So these are all going to be choices that you have. By the way, you know we can't buy the past. We all know that. But we can learn from the past. And that is one of the interesting decisions we make as an investor. I can't say it's as big a deal as stocks versus bonds. I can't say it's as big a deal as it is S&P 500 versus the two-fund strategy. Um, but what I do know is that a lot of people choose to follow the information that people propose be used to predict the future based on how we feel about the economy, how we feel about our competition, how we feel about U.S. versus international economies, how we feel about the unions, how we feel about the political structure. I mean, we look at all this stuff and we make a prediction about the future. And I don't think that's any good. I don't think it's going to lead people to better rates of return than using a very long period in the past. Now, we're looking at, at the 54 years here, but as in the last one, we looked at 96 years and could come to the same kinds of conclusions. Now, I want to go back just for a minute to the previous page. And the reason I want to go back to the page that is what? It's... Uh, a1A, because there there is a box uh, that is 1970 to 2023. That's what we looked at there. Then it says with annual rebalancing. Now, this is important because instead of just letting each one of the equity asset classes continue to do its thing, it is assumed here that once a year you go in and you sell off excess returns from the, the things that have been doing well and put some money in the things that have been doing poorly. Take from the rich and give to the poor. But instead of doing it annually in the, in, in the table that's right below it, you do it monthly. Now let's understand what that means. That means that once a month you would be going in and you'd be taking from those that were outperforming and putting it into those that are underperforming. 
And what you'll notice if you go all the way to Portfolio 7, Portfolio 7 in the upper annual rebalancing left you with almost $49 million and and below uh, almost $44 million. And I want you to understand why. Because when you rebalance monthly, you are taking from the better performing asset class more often than doing it once a year. And so, and so the, the impact here is not only did you go from about 49 million down to about 44 million, but the volatility was less with monthly rebalancing because you were getting more quickly out of the more volatile and moving into the more uh, uh, less volatile uh, equity asset classes. So my hope is you join me next week. Because next week, again, we're going to look at the S&P 500. We're going to look at the performance year by year, and I'm not going to talk through every one of them, but we're going to look at the implications of using not just the ultimate buy and hold. By the way, I think we've got to remind ourselves the ultimate buy and hold strategy left you with about little more than twice the S&P 500. Uh, whereas with the uh, worldwide all-value, for example, it was about three times. Uh, the two-fund strategy uh, was actually 12.5% uh, compound rate of return versus 12.1% for the ultimate buy and hold and so you go from about 49 million all the way up to about 57 million while you go from 10 equity funds down to two. And what we'll be discussing and exploring is, does it make sense? Is the two-fund strategy just as good as 10? Because if it is, even if it doesn't make me more money, it is a lot easier to manage. And at the end of the day, if you're a do-it-yourselfer, that's an important consideration. And for those who haven't been through our series before, we're going to be looking at the implications of combining all these different equity act, equity portfolios with fixed income. We're going to look at what happens as you contribute in, build, accumulate your portfolio using these different strategies uh, over the last 50-some years. We're also going to look then at taking money out and living off of these equity portfolios along with fixed income uh, uh, as, as you are, uh, I hope, celebrating retirement with more money than you need. I mean, that's our goal for all of you. And as I've said uh, this last weekend uh, at the conference, the uh, Retire Meet conference, this is, this is not about having more money uh, just because you just because you want to be rich and you and he, and you want to brag how much money you got, this is really about making sure that you are as secure as possible uh, in retirement uh, and do what you can to leave money to help others. Uh, when I go, Western Washington University is going to be happy I went because I'm leaving money to them, money to the kids, other charities that are meaningful to us. I would like that number to be as big as it possibly could without having to invest in cryptocurrencies. So, you know, I'm trying to find 
help you find as a do-it-yourselfer that right combination of stocks and bonds in the stock portion, the right combination of large and small and value and growth and U.S. and international, and all of those major decisions that hopefully you'll be able to set it and forget it. Now, I don't mean forget. You won't forget it. Nobody forgets it. We check in from time to time to see how we're doing. That's very hard not to do. But to do it in a way that once we get it on on path, on the, the straight and narrow, what we think is the best solution, that you will do what John Bogle wanted you to, and that is stay the course. I hope you'll share this with somebody you think might find it helpful. I certainly, particularly when we get through with the entire series, will uh, ask you to share that series with people, I think, for folks who really want to be a do-it-yourselfer. And cut out the middleman. The middleman, I know, is expensive. But if you can't do the work, the middleman is really cheap versus not doing the work. Our job is to try to prepare you to be that middleman yourself. Keep that fee yourself. But to do what that advisor would have done for you. I know you can do it. I'm not critical of those that don't want to do it. But by golly, if we can help make do-it-yourself investors better and have greater peace of mind in the process, that's our job. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.